We have been going through the book of Ruth, and uh, the book of Ruth is many things, many facets to it. It's like a diamond. You can look at it and, and see it glisten from many different angles. On the surface, it looks like a love story, what we today would call a romantic comedy, where this lonely young widow uh, from another country and Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor fall in love overcome all opposition, marry, have a child together, and live happily ever after. That's what it looks like on the surface. But of course, there's much more to Ruth than just that. Ruth is found in the Bible. It's part of the canon of Scripture, the inspired, infallible, inerrant canon of Scripture that God has given to us and reserved for us. And that means Ruth is redemptive history. And again, if you dig a little deeper, you can really see this very clearly in the book. Ruth covers a very important period in Israel's history. It starts in the days when the judges judged, and it ends with David, with King David. The very last word in the book is David, coming at the end of a genealogy. And so Ruth really is a bridge from the era of the judges to the dawn of the monarchy, and it shows us God fulfilling his promise to put a man from the tribe of Judah on the throne. It justifies the monarchy. It justifies David's reign. It's a kind of apologetic for David's kingship, for his line, being the uh, rulers over Israel. Further, we can say Ruth is prophetic because everything in this little story is designed to preach the gospel to us ahead of time. Ruth is a kind of preview of coming attractions. It shows us in, in this little microcosm of a story what God is going to do on the stage of world history in the future when he sends his son, in their future, of course, now our past. And when you look at it that way, when you look at it prophetically, we can see that we are really like Ruth and Naomi, exiled, barren, cursed, widowed, we're like Ruth and Naomi at the start of the story. The first Adam, like Elimelech, Naomi's husband, the first Adam led his family, that is the whole human race, into ruin and death and exile. And so there is a need for a second Adam to come and rescue us and restore us and redeem us, a second Adam who can be that faithful husband, who can bless us and lead us into life and into glory, who can make us fruitful. We need a Boaz. And ultimately, of course, Jesus is our Boaz. He is the greater Boaz, doing for us in a much greater way what Boaz does for Ruth and Naomi in this story. Ruth, you could say, is the gospel. This book of Ruth is the gospel in blueprint form. Yes, this is an entertaining story, but it's not just entertaining. It's good for our souls. This story is good for our souls. It gives us encouragement as we see God at work, God's providence unfolding. You come to church today feeling a lot like Naomi at the end of chapter one, feeling bitter, feeling abandoned, feeling all alone. If you feel like your life is more misery than it is pleasantness, this is a great story for you because it shows you you are not all alone. It shows you God has provided a redeemer 
A Redeemer who turns your sorrow to joy, who turns your mourning to gladness. A Redeemer who will give you rest, who will give you peace and security. The book of Ruth really shows God's grace to all of us. The book of Ruth reveals God's grace to all of us, to all his people. It shows us a God of hesed. That's the Hebrew word that is used again and again in this book. Hesed, covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, loyal love, all those different ways of translating hesed. None of them totally captured. But that's what this book is about, a God of hesed and how that hesed, the hesed of God is to be reflected in his people. But there are still other dimensions to the book of Ruth. Ruth really is a literary masterpiece. Of all the great stories that have been written down through the ages, Ruth is among the very, very best. And catching on to some of the literary features of this story, in other words, seeing how the story is written, how it's been put together, catching some of those literary aspects of the story can really deepen our understanding of what it's all about and therefore deepen our understanding of what God is doing for us. The Holy Spirit really outdid himself when he inspired this work because this is a perfectly constructed, perfectly written story in every way. God orchestrated the events of history and then he orchestrated the recording of those events in Scripture in a way that when we really see what's happening, it can bring us great joy when we see the beauty and the glory of what's here. Let me give you a few examples of of, of the literary features, the literary techniques that are being used here. The whole story is very symmetrical. The beginning and ending match. For everything that happens in the first half of the story, there's something that matches it in the second half of the story. So the story opens with the devastation of Naomi's family as her husband and her two sons die. The story ends with Naomi's family restored as a replacement is raised up for her husband and for her sons. Indeed, it's an interesting Hebrew word, a somewhat odd Hebrew word that is used to describe her two sons in Ruth chapter 1. That same word then shows up at the end in Ruth chapter 4 to describe the son who is born to Ruth. The story opens with tragedy for Ruth as her husband dies and leaves her childless. And the story ends with joy for Ruth as she has a new husband who gives her a child. In chapter 1, two of Naomi's relatives, Ruth and Orpah, will decide whether or not to support her. One does, one doesn't. And it's actually talking about marriage that drives the one away who decides to not support her. In chapter 4, two of Naomi's relatives, Boaz and an unnamed kinsman, will decide whether or not to support her. One does, one doesn't, and it's actually talk about marriage that drives the one away who doesn't support her. The center of the story, of course, is when Ruth meets Boaz and then pledges to redeem her. There are two meetings between Ruth and Boaz, and there are all kinds of things about those two meetings that match one another, all kinds of symmetries and perils. The first time Ruth and Boaz meet in chapter 2, it's at the barley harvest. The second time they meet in chapter 3, it's when people are winnowing barley. The first meeting takes place in a field. The second meeting takes place on the threshing floor. But both have to do with barley. And there are other interesting parallels or actually interesting comparisons and contrasts you can make. The first meeting between both Boaz and Ruth takes place during the day. The second meeting takes place in the middle of the night. 
The first time he asks his other uh, workers, who is this woman leaning in my field? And the second time, when she's at her feet in chapter 3, which we just read, he asks, who are you? Who is this? Questions of identity occur repeatedly. Yes, who is this in the field? And then who is this at the threshing floor? In fact, those questions of identity really dominate the book. When Naomi comes into Bethlehem, back into Bethlehem from Moab, people ask, is this Naomi? When Ruth comes back from the threshing floor at the end of chapter 3, Naomi asks, who are you? They're matching questions about identity there. Naomi's identity is questioned, then Ruth's identity is questioned. When Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, she says, I left full, but have come back empty. When Ruth goes to the threshing floor, she's empty-handed. But when she returns, Boaz says, you must not go back empty-handed. And he fills her shawl with six measures of barley. The word empty occurs at key times. Naomi's emptiness and then that emptiness being filled. The word emptiness happens two times so we can see that this is a reversal. There's emptiness and then that emptiness is filled. That's just a taste of, of some of the ways this story is exquisitely constructed. It's so beautifully constructed. Everything, every detail in the first part of the story has its match in the second part of the story. First part of the story is all about neediness and emptiness. The second half is all about fullness, filling that emptiness, meeting those needs. Uh, the first half is all about death and family brokenness. The second half is all about life and family restoration. But it's not just that the book of Ruth has this very clear narrative architecture to it, a very clear literary structure to it. There are other literary techniques that are used in this story to capture our attention and drive the point home. And particularly, and we will see this in chapter 3 and over into chapter 4, particularly the use of symbolism and suspense. And that's what we're going to see here this morning uh, in chapter 3. Remember where we are in this story. Ruth has been out gleaning in Boaz's field uh, so that she and Naomi don't starve to death. Boaz has taken special steps to make sure that she is protected and provided for. He has sort of given her most favored gleaning status to ensure that she will be cared for. She's even gotten to have a meal at his table of bread and wine. When Ruth comes back and tells Naomi whose field she's been in, uh, when Naomi discovers that it's Boaz's field, she gets excited because she says Boaz is a kinsman. He is a relative. And therefore, as far as Naomi knows at this point in the story, he is eligible to be a kinsman redeemer. She acknowledges that in verse 2. Is not Boaz our kinsman? This concept of a kinsman, of a kinsman redeemer, is really right at the heart of the book of Ruth. And if you do not understand what a kinsman redeemer is, you're not going to really understand this story. You have to have this background. It's vital to the story. So what is a kinsman redeemer? Well, it's really just what it sounds like. It is a family member, that is a kinsman, who redeems another family member who is in need. And we didn't read passages about that about this this morning. Uh, you can go back and read in the law, in the Torah, all about the kinsman redeemer. It shows up all over the place in Leviticus 25, in Numbers 35, in Deuteronomy 19. In various places, you have instructions about the kinsman redeemer. Under the old covenant law, 
Under the old covenant law, the kinsman redeemer was an institution God provided for his people for a very special purpose. The kinsman redeemer institution would preserve a family's inheritance and standing in the land of promise. Remember, that standing you have in the land of promise is typological. It's symbolic of your standing in God's eternal kingdom. So you don't want to lose your standing in the land of promise. You don't want to lose your family's inheritance in the land. And so God has provided this kinsman redeemer institution to keep a family line from dying out or from losing its inheritance in the promised land. And of course, even more importantly, the kinsman redeemer institution foreshadows Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer, who is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. So these are some things that a kinsman redeemer would do. This is the way the kinsman redeemer institution worked. If an Israelite found himself enslaved because of debt, the kinsman redeemer could pay off his debts and purchase his freedom. That would be an act of redemption. If he is enslaved because of debt, the kinsman redeemer would, would, would redeem him, would set him free would restore his freedom by paying off his debts. If an Israelite was wrongly accused, the kinsman redeemer could step in and act as a defender, a defense attorney to ensure justice is done. He could repel those false accusations. He could protect his fellow family member from those false accusations. If an Israelite is murdered, the kinsman redeemer could be the avenger of blood, the one entrusted to carry out vengeance against the murderer. And under certain conditions, if an Israelite man died, this is the complicated one, but it plays into the book of Ruth. If an Israelite man died without leaving a son, a kinsman redeemer could take that man's place, the deceased man's place, marrying his widow and raising up a son to carry on the name of the deceased man. That would be the role of the kinsman redeemer. This is known as a leveret marriage, a leveret marriage. And it shows up in several stories in Genesis. So actually this was instituted even before the giving of the law. It's part of what's going on here in Ruth. It becomes the centerpiece of a debate that Jesus has with the Pharisees about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection in Matthew chapter 22. So it's actually pretty important to understand the leveret marriage, this institution. We're not under it today. We're not under the law in that way. We're not trying to preserve uh, a stake in the promised land. That whole uh, system has been taken up into Christ and fulfilled in him and transformed in him. So we don't need to keep the Leveret law today, but it's an important institution in the Old Testament. And it's important to this story. Now, Naomi needs a kinsman redeemer and she realizes that. And the role of a kinsman redeemer in her case, if you think about what functions she needs a kinsman redeemer to fulfill, Uh, She needs a kinsman redeemer who can reclaim her lost inheritance, Elimelech's lost inheritance in the promised land. She needs a kinsman redeemer who can become a leveret husband, not for her, she's too old to bear children, but by marrying Ruth, this leveret husband could raise up a son who would take the place of Elimelech and his sons who have died. So the kinsman redeemer would enter into a leveret marriage with Ruth, raise up a son to carry on Elimelech's line and perpetuate his name and maintain his inheritance in the land of promise. Naomi knows that's what she needs. That's the situation. So Naomi realizes Ruth has made this connection with Boaz. She's been in Boaz's field and 
Boaz is a kinsman. And so Naomi hatches a plan. Her goal is security, uh, as it says in verse 1, or really rest uh, is a better translation there, I think. She says to Ruth in verse 1, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for you, that it may be well for you? Shall I not seek rest for you? And so she tells Ruth what to do. Ruth is to anoint herself. She's to get all dressed up in her best clothes. She's to wash and anoint herself. She's to get dressed up in her best clothes. And she's to go to Boaz on the threshing floor at night. Naomi tells Ruth to go approach Boaz on the threshing floor at night while he is asleep. And then Naomi says, Boaz can take it from there. Just do whatever he says, he'll get it. And Ruth, of course, agrees to this plan. Now, you might ask, what's going on here? This all sounds a bit strange. Uh, this, this is uh, certainly not advice for single ladies looking for a husband, uh, typically speaking. Uh, but, it, but, it's, but you have to understand what's going on here, what's happening here. Ruth is like a bride preparing for her wedding day. The washing, the anointing, the best clothes, that's what that is. She's, she's dressing up like a bride preparing for her wedding day. And Naomi wants Ruth to approach Bo- Boaz dressed as a bride to remind him, to give him a little nudge and say, hey, you're a kinsman. You could be a kinsman redeemer in this situation. You could be a leveret husband in this situation. So Ruth executes on the plan. That night after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to sleep near a heap of grain on the threshing floor. All of this would have been customary practice. These were the customs of the day to to, to thresh out the grain and then the men would, would, would sleep there so they could get right back to work the next day. Ruth goes to him under the cover of darkness, lays down at his feet, uncovers his feet. So she's laying down at his feet. She's uncovered his feet. And the story doesn't tell us. Maybe at some point in the middle of the night, his feet get cold. Uh, Whatever the case, he is startled. He wakes up, and lo and behold, he finds a woman lying at his feet. And Boaz asks, who are you? And Ruth gives him this beautiful, humble, submissive answer, but it's also one of bold initiative. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a kinsman redeemer. So interesting, she uses this language. So if you you go back to chapter 2, this is another one of those parallels, another one of those connections we have to draw. Back in chapter 2, when Boaz first met Ruth, what did he say to her? He said, the Lord bless you, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz says to Ruth, you have sought refuge under the wings of the Lord. May he bless you. May he protect you and provide for you. May you find the shelter you need under the wings of the Lord. Boaz blesses her and he prays for her that she'll find refuge under the wings of the Lord. Well, now Boaz, as Ruth comes to Boaz uh, in the middle of the night, what does Ruth say to Boaz? Ruth, in a way, suggests that Boaz could play a part in answering his own prayer. Boaz said, may you find refuge, may you find shelter under the wings of the Lord. Ruth says to Boaz, take your maidservant under your wings. Give me that refuge you prayed I would find. Give me that shelter, that protection. Be that shield that you prayed I would find. 
Ruth says, spread your wings over me. Really what she's saying is, will you be a leveret husband to me? Will you be a kinsman redeemer to me and to Naomi? And this spreading of the wing over another, when a man spreads the wing of uh, of his garment over a woman. That was symbolic for entering into a marriage covenant. It's interesting, in Ezekiel 16, the Lord is really recounting the story of Israel and his marriage to Israel, entering into a covenant with Israel. And this is how it's described in Ezekiel 16. The Lord says to Israel, I spread my wings over you and cover your, covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became one with me. That's how the Lord describes entering into a marriage covenant with Israel. He says, I spread my wings over you. I covered your nakedness. I swore an oath to you. We entered into a covenant of oneness. That's what Ruth is seeking. That's what she's asking for. Now look at Boaz's response. He's such a great and godly man. Uh, I kind of think of Boaz as uh, he's like the Mr. Knightley of the Bible. You know, if you know Jane Austen's Emma, that's the only Jane Austen book I ever read. Uh, and I read it because I had to teach it. But um, it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good book. And I really like Mr. Knightley, the character there. And Boaz is kind of the Mr. Knightley of the Bible. Because Mr. Knightley always knows what to do. Uh, he's always confident and composed and, and, and confident. And that's how Boaz here. Boaz knows just what to do. In fact, it's really interesting if you think about Boaz, the kind of godly man this is. Uh, it's not surprising one of the pillars in Solomon's temple was named after Boaz. Uh, Solomon named the temples, the, 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 the pillars in the temple he built, Jachin and Boaz. He named one after his great-great-great-grandfather, Boaz. And you can see why from the way Boaz acts in this story. He is a pillar among the people of God. He is a pillar in God's house. But you know what? All of us can be pillars in God's house as well. We can all be Boazes. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus promises that the one who conquers will be made a pillar in the temple of God. The one who conquers will be made a Boaz in the temple of God, a pillar in the temple of God. The one who conquers like Boaz will be rewarded like Boaz. The one who is a faithful warrior in God's kingdom like Boaz will receive Boaz's reward. Now, what do you see Boaz do here? How does he respond? Well, he responds to her with integrity and with love and with a promise. Boaz is a man who takes responsibility. He is a man of action and he is a man of his word. He says to Ruth, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness. There's that word again, hesed. He says you have shown more hesed You've shown more covenant love, more loving loyalty, more loving kindness at the end than at the beginning. And what is this great act of hesed, this great act of covenant loyalty on Ruth's part? He says, you did not go after the younger men, whether poor or rich. So we get here a sense of how Boaz is a good bit older uh, than Ruth. Uh, That's certainly implied here. Ruth could have gone after a younger man closer to her age. But if she marries someone who's not in the family, somebody who's not in that circle of kinsmen, if she doesn't marry a, a, a kinsman, it's not going to help Naomi. And it will mean the end of Elimelech's line. She was free to do that, I think, but she doesn't. Instead, she chooses to perform hesed towards Naomi and towards the deceased. 
by going to Boaz in this kind of way. By going to Boaz in this way, she's acting on behalf of Naomi and Elimelech. It's an act of covenant loyalty where she says, I am willing to do what it takes to carry on your family name, your inheritance in the land of promise. Again, I said this is a kind of romantic comedy, and, and it is, I think. But it's not, a, it's not a comedy in the modern sense of a comedy. It's not a self-serving romance. It's not just two people who are out to, to fulfill their desires in whatever way. No, this is about service and kindness to others. And whatever romantic feelings Boaz and Ruth might have had towards one another, they allow those romantic feelings to be overridden by and controlled by their desire to be obedient to God. Their romantic desires here are subordinated to God's law, and the way that they pursue those desires is shaped and controlled by God's law. So Ruth has laid it all out there, what she wants. Now Boaz is going to take charge, just like Naomi said that he would. Do not fear, he says. That's always a comforting promise. He's echoing the words that God speaks so often to his people, that angels speak to God's people. Do not fear. I will do for you all that you have asked. For you are a woman of virtue as the whole town knows or as those who gather at the, the gates know. So it's the whole, everybody who passes through the gates of the city, they know that you are a virtuous woman, an excellent woman. This is very, very interesting. I've alluded to this already, but I want to spell it out for you a little bit more here. It's interesting that Boaz here calls, calls Ruth a woman of virtue or a woman of excellence. That's only used a couple other times. There's only a couple other places uh, in the Bible where that language, woman of excellence, is used. They're found in Proverbs. And it's just to describe the, the wife that the wise man in Proverbs should pursue. An excellent wife, a wife of noble character. And it's especially there, of course, in Proverbs 31 that we have the description of the woman of virtue, the woman of excellence, the wife of noble character. Now, Proverbs had not yet been written it would be put together by a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. Proverbs had not yet been written when Boaz says this, but Proverbs ends with a description of the virtuous wife, the excellent wife. And when it describes the virtuous wife, the excellent wife, it clearly has women like Ruth in mind. In fact, Ruth is probably the prototype from which that picture is drawn, that picture of the, the, the virtuous wife, the excellent wife. The exact same language is used in Proverbs 31 to describe the wife of the wise man that is used here to describe Ruth. And remember this too, keep this in mind. In the Hebrew Bible, the ordering of the books, the way the books are ordered in the Hebrew canon, the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Proverbs. So much of the book of Proverbs is about the wise man, but it concludes in chapter 31 with the wise woman, the wife of noble character. It's all about the prince, the, the, the young man who's to grow in wisdom and the kind of woman he should shun and the kind of woman he should pursue. And it ends with a description of his wife. Now he's the king, she's the queen, this wife of noble character. It ends with this acrostic poem celebrating this excellent wife this excellent woman that the man has now married and made his queen. Boaz is clearly the embodiment of the wise man described in Proverbs 1 to 30. Ruth is clearly the embodiment of the excellent wife described in Proverbs chapter 31. The same language is used. 
In fact, it's even more interesting. It's not just the excellent wife. Boaz, in verse 11, says, all the people at the, at, at the gate know how virtuous you are. That is actually an echo of Proverbs 31, verse 31, the very last verse in the book of Proverbs, where her works, the works of this excellent wife, are praised in the city gates. All the townspeople know of the virtue of this woman described in Proverbs 31. So think about this. If you were just reading your Hebrew Bible straight through, you read Proverbs 31, it's all about the wife of noble character, this excellent wife who's praised in the gates of the city, and then you just keep on reading, and you start reading the book of Ruth. And then you get to Ruth chapter 3, and Boaz says, you are an excellent woman. And he says, "All at the city gates, they know of your excellence. They know of your virtue. Ruth is described in exactly that same language. We are supposed to link Ruth with the woman of Proverbs 31, just as I think we are supposed to link Boaz with the man described in the rest of Proverbs so at this point, where, where are we now in the story? Well, at this point, we are all pulling for the happy ending. This is the happy ending we want to see for, for Boaz and Ruth to ride off in the, into the sunset together. Uh, we want to see Ruth and Boaz marry and live happily ever after. We want this wise man and this virtuous woman to come together. And what happens when a wise man and a virtuous woman come together in marriage. You get a Psalm 128 type household. That's what we want to see happen, right? That's what we're pulling for. In a romantic comedy, there's always a couple that you're pulling for. I want them to end up together. But of course, whenever that happens in a romantic comedy, there's always also some kind of obstacle that gets in the way. And we're going to see that here too. But that's where we are in the story. The ideal man described in the rest of scripture is fulfilled in Boaz. You know, that ideal man, the way he's described at the beginning of chapter two, a mighty man of valor, a hero of a man. That's Boaz. And you have Ruth, this woman of noble character, this excellent woman. It seems like they are a perfect match. We want to see them come together. But there's a snag. There's a snag. And Boaz tells us about it in verse 12, as he goes on with his response, he says, yes, I am a kinsman, but there is a kinsman closer than I. You pull out the family tree for Elimelech, you'll see, yes, Boaz is on that tree, but there's actually another man eligible to perform this role who is a closer relative. Oh no, an obstacle in the way of the happy ending. What is Boaz going to do about it? Well, he says to Ruth, stay here tonight, and in the morning, I'll take care of it. That's what the ideal man says to the ideal woman. We got this problem. I'll take care of it. Again, you see, Boaz is a man of action, a man of decisiveness. His word is his deed. Is he, if, he, if he says he'll do it, it is as good as done. And he makes a promise here, a promise to take responsibility for her. That's what Boaz is always doing. He's always taking responsibility for others. He's always taking initiative. He's taking action to protect and to provide. He says the closer kinsman has to have first right of refusal. But Boaz says, if he will perform the duty of the kinsman redeemer, let him do it. But if not, I will perform it for you as the Lord lives. That's his oath. 
That's his promise to Ruth. So she stays there that night and then she sneaks back to Naomi in the morning. But before she leaves, Boaz does something else of great significance, great symbolic significance. He gives her six measures of barley. Now, in my New King James Version, it says six ephahs of barley. Uh, an ephah is a bushel. It's not likely that's actually what's there. In fact, if you look at the New King James, you'll see that ephah is in italic, which means it's not actually in the Hebrew. The translators have added it in because it's like it's missing a word, something's implied, and they have filled it in for us. It's not likely with six bushels of, of barley. She would not have been able to carry that much. But actually, it doesn't really matter what the measurement was. It might have been six bushels. It might have been six handfuls. The important thing is the number of six. It just says he gave her six of barley. Whatever it was, that doesn't matter. He gave her six. Whatever it was, six is what is important here, the number. And so we have to ask, what's the meaning of the number six? Well, throughout Scripture, numbers have symbolic significance. There's nothing weird or mystical about this. It's just kind of obvious on the face of the text of Scripture that different numbers are associated with different meanings, different themes in Scripture. So we should ask, what's the meaning of the number six? Well, on the one hand, the number six is the number of incompleteness and fallenness. But it's also, therefore, the number of, of a promise, of a guarantee of what is to come. It's the number of, of man in his fallenness and weakness. Man most likely fell into sin on the sixth day. 666 is the number of the fallen man, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Six is the number, it seems, of falling short, of falling short of seven, of falling short of, of God's Sabbath rest. In other sense, if you have six, there is an implied promise of a seven. That if you get to six, there's a promise that a seven is still to come, that Sabbath is coming. And so, for example, think about how the number six could be promissory. Hebrew slaves served for six years and then were released on the seventh. In Exodus 24, six days in a fuller way. Six days of preparation pointing to a seventh, to a coming Sabbath glory. In John chapter 2, there are six clay water pots for purification representing the old covenant. Jesus takes those clay water pots and he turns them into wine, glorifying that water, turning it into wine. And all of this takes place on, if you're counting days in John, on the seventh day. The Sabbath day. It's a picture of the coming glory. So six means seven is coming. It means Sabbath is promised. Rest is promised. Rest is coming. <clears throat> you could say six is the number of the old covenant, the number of waiting for the seventh, for perfection, for redemption to come. Guarantee that there will be a seventh. The six at this point in the story symbolizes Ruth's situation. She's close to rest. Remember, this chapter started with Naomi seeking rest. That's how the chapter started. Now Boaz has promised her rest. And look at what Naomi says at the end of the chapter when asked until he has concluded the matter this day. What a beautiful picture this is of the gospel. What a beautiful our redemption and brought us into his glorious promised rest. We rest. We sit still. That's what Naomi says to our salvation. He is our kinsman redeemer. 
He came to accomplish our redemption and to bring us into his promised rest. He came into the world to be our kinsman. That's what the incarnation is all about. In order to be our redeemer, that's what the crucifixion is all about. He does all the work necessary to bring us into God's promised Sabbath rest. Jesus is our great kinsman redeemer. And he has performed all the functions of a kinsman redeemer on our behalf. He has solidarity with us. He is our kinsman because he shares in our humanity. He became part of the human family in the womb of the Virgin Mary so he could redeem us. He's got that solidarity with us. He entered into our family, the human family, for this reason. So he could redeem us. So he could pay the ransom to set us free, a ransom price he paid with his own blood on the cross. And through that ransom price, we have been set free. We've been set free from slavery to sin, slavery to death, slavery to the fear of death, slavery to Satan. We've been set free from all those slave masters. Jesus, by his blood, has paid the ransom price, the redemption price to set us free. We're not slaves anymore. Our debts are canceled. Our debts have been paid in full. We've been set free through this kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he restores our inheritance. Not an inheritance in the land of Palestine, but something much greater than that. He restores to us our inheritance in the promised new creation, the promised land of the new heavens and earth. He avenges our enemies by destroying the devil, by crushing Satan on the cross, by crushing the skull of the serpent under his feet as he hangs upon the cross. He has avenged us against our enemies. He defends us against all false accusations in the heavenly court, putting himself forward as a shield to protect us from any accusations that might come our way. So the Apostle Paul can say, who can bring any charge against God's elect? No charge can be brought against you because you have Jesus as a kinsman redeemer to stand in the way of those accusations, to block those charges from ever reaching the Father's heavenly court. He is your divine defense attorney. And of course, what else does he do as our kinsman redeemer? He's also the levered husband that we needed. He takes the church to be his bride, his lawfully wedded wife. He is the new Adam. The first Adam left us as widows. The first Adam was a failed husband who brought us nothing but death and exile and barrenness. He brought nothing but curse into the world and to his wife. But this second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, this kinsman redeemer, brings us life and joy and blessing. He makes the bride of Christ fruitful. So the bride of Christ becomes a mother. And you can think of yourself as part of the bride of Christ. Or you can think of the church as your mother. And and you are her children, the children that Jesus has raised up through her. All those images work. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the leveret husband we have needed. This is what Jesus has done. Most of all, we could say he brings us Sabbath. He moves us from the six of the old covenant to the seven of the new. He brings us true rest. We sit still while he handles the whole matter of our salvation. We sit still while he does the work. Indeed, like Boaz... 
We can say he refused to rest until the matter was accomplished. He refused to rest until he had worked out our whole salvation and paid the whole price and accomplished everything that needed to be done to rescue us, to bring us into his family and into his kingdom. And so now that rest is ours. He did the work, we get the rest. And so Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy burdened and I will give you rest. What is this rest? It is refreshment for our souls. It is his joy and his peace that he now shares with us. That's what it means to enter into his rest, his Sabbath. It means that we bask in the light and the warmth and the glow of his love. That he shines the light of his love and his glory on us. It means he has spread his wings over us and made an oath to be one with us and to protect us and shelter us and provide for us. He's taken us under his wing and made us one with him. He protects us and provides for us in every way, whatever we need. He meets that need. He does not send us away empty-handed. He has worked for you what your own works could never accomplish. He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. We sit still while he works out our redemption. You think about it. The disciples scattered when Jesus went to the cross. Nobody was there. They were sitting still while he was doing the work. He did it alone. That's Boaz. He's going to go do this work of redemption for Ruth alone. She's not even going to be there. She's just sitting still back at home while he does the work. He does the work, we get the rest. That's good news. That is the good news. Enjoy that good news. Enjoy knowing that these things are true. Build your life upon these truths. That's Ruth's story. That's Naomi's story. That is your story. That is your story in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, the story isn't quite yet finished. We've jumped ahead of ourselves just a little bit. We've, we've jumped the gun uh, a little bit and gotten ahead of ourselves. We've got to see how it's all going to resolve, how it's all going to play out in chapter four. At the end of chapter three, Boaz has assured Ruth of her redemption. He has promised it. But we don't know just yet who it's going to be. Boaz or this other closer relative. A few things to note right there at the end of chapter three. These six measures, six whatevers of barley. You know, barley is seed. When Boaz gives her barley, he is giving her seed. And he says uh, to put it in her shawl, which means she would carry it right out in front of her, right where a woman would carry a baby, actually. He's giving her seed and she's going to carry it right where a woman would carry a baby. This is prophetic. It is a sign of what is to come. When Ruth gets back, she tells Naomi what Boaz had said. Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi is going to be included in this provision, this restoration, this redemption. Naomi said back in chapter 1, she went to Moab full and came back empty. This is a promise. She will be filled again. And notice that when Ruth comes to Naomi, Naomi asks, who is it? Now, she knows who it is. She knows it's Ruth. So why does she ask that? Why does she say, who is it? Well, she wants to know what's happened. 
What's your identity now, really, is what she's saying to Ruth. What is your identity? Who are you? Are you coming back to me as Mrs. Boaz? Or are you still single? Are you coming back a married woman or not? Do you have a levered husband for us or not? Well, as it turns out, Ruth is still single. But for all practical purposes, she is engaged to be married. She comes back an engaged woman. She just doesn't know to who. She does not yet know who she will marry, which kinsman it will be. And so at this point in the story, we are left hanging. We are left in suspense. And if you want to find out how it all gets resolved, with some really interesting twists and turns along the way, come back next Sunday. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.